everyone. Welcome to the Boas, Boas, Boas podcast with your hosts, Keith McPeak, Rob Stone, and myself, Warren Booth. And today, we're going to talk about Madagascan boas. Take it away, guys. Let's catch up a little bit. So, uh, how how are you guys doing, Rob? How are you guys? How are you doing? I'm doing great, uh, Keith and Warren. Yeah, great being with you guys here. One before I jump into it, we did have one quick correction out of our uh, Jamaican and Puerto Rican boas show, and uh, Michael Sena of WestIndianBoas.org, uh, along with Jeff Murray, uh, great work there. And again, want to uh, push forward that website. Everyone should go check it out, WestIndianBoas.org. Michael had reached out and provided me with a 2009 paper that highlighted a study of the, gen- the captive genetic diversity of Jamaican boas in European zoo collections that was super interesting. Uh, just as a, a side note to our conversation around the study that was done on U.S. captive population, population genetics in Puerto Rican boas and whether there was sort of an equivalent study in Jamaican boas. The answer is no, that there's not a direct equivalency, but uh, it is worthwhile to point out uh, that paper from 2009 that's referenced on the westindianboas.org site, and um, I'm sure Mike will be happy to provide it to anyone of, uh, who's interested as well. He provided it to me, and definitely super interesting, um, particularly to the extent that it evaluated really the relationship of extant animals with the founder stock, and they actually had wild collected animals that were still there. So the ability to identify and manage the stud book associated with animals that haven't, uh, whose genetics are not represented in the animals um, that are currently held. So it was super interesting. In terms of my collection itself, I think maybe a, uh, maybe yeah. a pair of Jamaican boas this year and the female Solomon Island tree boa looks pretty good for this year. Um, but that's about it on my end. Uh, so yeah, how about you, Warren? How's the move gone? Uh, well, the, the move's still underway. The house is being built. should be ready, hopefully, at the end of June. Um, so I moved uh, the majority of my boas, all my boa imperator and my sigma and my womas and a few other things. I moved them to a friend that lives in Knoxville. I uh, did that last month. So that was fun, you know, loading up a U-Haul trailer with racks and freedom breeders and then and then 70 boas or whatever whatever I brought up. Um, and in my back and forth journeys, I call in and check on them. So they all seem to be doing well. Uh, even have some breeding, which is kind of cool, some Costa Rican tea positive stuff and maybe hog islands. Um, and then all of the arboreals are still in my house in Tulsa. And, um, you know, I wasn't really trying to breed anything this year, but there was a one of the female Trinidad tree boas, the Rischenberger eye, was kind of looking swollen. Um, so I put a male in with her and they were breeding. So she's acting... Uh, a bit funny, and it's just basking now and stuff like that. So it could be interesting to see if we get a another litter of Trinidads from from her, which would be really cool. Yeah. But you know, other than that, I I had no plans to do. Well, I had no plans to breed anything this year. So if we get anything, it'll be a bonus, which would be uh, which we which should be neat, and hopefully they will be ready to um, to give birth after we move into the new place. So I can move them in and settle them. And, and I'm not too worried about moving gravid snakes. I did that. When I moved from North Carolina to Oklahoma, I brought 
gravid boas that spent three days in in boxes with heat packs and they all did fine so um i'll just have to keep an eye on things hmm. that's gotta be stressful though right i think well they say moving is one of the most stressful things right and it's yeah it's, it's very stressful i just want to sell my current home in tulsa you know we we put it on the market in the uh, just as the market seems to be on a downturn a little bit but we've got several months before I need to panic. <laughs> right. But, uh, but other than that, everything's going really well. You know, Good. driving 2,000 miles is uh, every week and a half is not fun, but uh, uh, it gives me a lot of time to listen to podcasts so, <laughs> and audiobooks. Yeah. Very good. So on my end... Um, I got a lot of interesting stuff going on this year. Boa wise, it looks like I have two green Sanzinian females, which is appropriate for tonight's conversation. Um, that look very good. They're showing all the right signs. Um, so got high hopes for them. Um, my Argentine boa definitely is gravid. I have a Guyana female that is definitely gravid. Um, I have a Kandoya Pulsani that looks gravid. Um, and then I have some pythons. I have my Woma look good. My blackhead pythons look good. Uh, who knows with my bow and I, we'll see what happens there. Um, not really have high hopes for that, but we'll see. You never know. They surprise a lot of people sometimes, so we'll see what happens there. Um, so yeah, I got a lot of cool stuff going on here with the snakes this year, put a little more effort into them to see what I could do with certain things that I kind of had on a back burner. So kind of excited to see how it all pans out. Yeah. If they all pan out, you're going to be a really busy boy with feeding, feeding snakes. Yeah. A lot of ones uh, that are fun to get going too. So (laughs) (laughs) I have my daughter's wedding. Your daughter's wedding coming up in September, so you know that should all fall into place perfectly. <laughs> Wonderful, great timing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so tonight's show we're going to be talking about the boas of Madagascar, something that's near and dear to my heart. I know Warren has a passion for a lot of these animals as well as Rob, so definitely looking forward to this one. So just get into it. Um, so the boas of Madagascar, there was four recognized boas that I know of, but Warren just had stated something before the show that we can touch on. Um, so we have uh, a Carantophis dumeralli, or the dumeral's boa. We have uh, Carantophis madagarensis, or the Madagascar ground boa. We have the Sanzinia madagarensis, or the eastern Madagascar tree boa. And we have Sanzinia voltani, or western Madagascar tree boa. But Warren, before the show, we just had a little conversation. You were saying something about the Dumeril's boa. Yeah, there's been some genetic work done over the last uh, number of years that suggests that within what we recognize as Dumerili, there might actually be some cryptic speciation. So there was work done um, by, let me see if I can find it. Yeah, Orozco Turengle, or Turengle. Um, in 2008 that um, through their sampling of wild collected specimens on Madagascar, they, they went through the Sanzinia uh, and the Akrantophis and they found uh, 
um, three specimens from the southern part of the range that really fell out as being something different. Um, and then if we look at those on a phylogenetic tree, you get uh, basically two branches that have Dumeruli on it, and one of the branches then um, splits into uh, into Madagascariensis, the, the Madagascan ground boa. So it, it looks like there might be something else going on with, with Dumeril's uh, and with that Icrantufus group that, that probably warrants some um, some additional work. You know, that's mirrored whenever we look at Graham Reynolds' paper uh, from, um, I think that's from 2013. Uh, they also show the same kind of splitting of potentially two different lineages of Dumerilli and therefore probably two, and, and therefore two separate species. Uh, mm. I think the other part that you touched upon was the fact that it's, um, that within Sanzinia, we do recognize them now as two separate species. For a long time, they were um, being listed as subspecies. So the Madagascariensis and the Voluntune um, definitely genetically um, is supported as being separate species. But interestingly, talking to friends that, that work on Madagascar, um, you know, they say that those species are largely distributed across the island. So it's not as if you're finding a clear barrier between one species and the next. And therefore, you might either be seeing um, one species that is very genetically diverse and only being sampled in the extremes of its range, or else um, a species with a hybrid zone. And on the island, you might be finding actual hybrids. Uh, and we know that you know they, they will readily breed with each other. We've seen m- multiple people um, particularly in the UK and Europe, producing hybrids from from the Easterns and the Westerns. Um, so I thought that I thought that was um, you know it should be noted. You did you did say they were both separate species, which is a good thing. Um, some people still think that they're subspecies, but I think the Dumerals one's pretty interesting. Um, I would love yeah. to see how that pans out. You know, the problem with this is that um, it's re- you know you need to rely on on wild specimens. There's not a lot of people collecting. Uh, wild specimens of Dumerilli, and there's even fewer people with the money to actually do to do the genetic work. Um, so we might see something fall out of that and down the line. Um, but um, I just don't know anybody working on on the boas of Madagascar in terms of their um, evolutionary genetics at the moment. Mm. You know, uh, conver- private conversations with Paul Mitzfeld on the Sanzinia group too, and he has a lot of pictures taken from. Um, people over there, and it, it's pretty amazing to see just the look diversity of Sanzinia that are being collected or seen in the wild as compared to what we see in captive collections. So there's probably, like you said, some work to be done there too with the Sanzinia. Yeah, I've been I've been collecting shed skins from Sanzinia for a number of years with the um, plan eventually to do a genetic study of what we have in captivity. So to understand the actual genetic lineages that are present, and there, therefore, in time, um, whenever more people crack the code on how to breed these things, you know, it could be used somewhat as a, as a stud book to mm-hmm. outsource genetically distinct individuals that are within the same species. Um, I just need to get around to doing that at some point. I need to even, I need to move all of my samples from Tulsa, from my lab in Tulsa to my lab up here, um, and uh, eventually I'll do that and I'll start sequencing those to see what we've got. Um, but basically it's just, you know, just like with bowlings, we'll be doing that with bowlings as well. And we've got data generated for those. Um, but it's tried to try and understand what is present in the, mm-hmm. in the U.S. population. Of course, we we can't necessarily import from Europe because of their CITES-1 um, status. So that can make things difficult. But it would be good to know what we've got here at least. 
Yeah, well, if you need some shed skins, I can always send you some from mine too and tell you as much of the history as I know about them too. Yeah, that would be great, just from the adults. Same same thing with, with other people that have adult um, Sanzinia. I don't need if they've got adults and they're, you know, like siblings or adults and their offspring. It's just the unique, you know, adult animals would be use, would be worthwhile. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. So I thought maybe we'd get into the natural history first of the different species, um, starting with uh, the Dumerals boa. Um, scientifically noted in, 19, in 1860 by the Italian, Italian geologist Giorgio Jan, its scientific name, Ecrantophis, means lazy snake. I thought that was interesting. Uh, Dumerals boas are found in the south and southwest Madagascar, where it is moderately dry and arid. The species is not accustomed to the highly humid weather typically associated with the rainforests of Madagascar. They are found more in the dry forests and thorn bushes at the lower and mid elevations on the island. Uh, they can be found in the savannas, central highlands, uh, distinctive dry forests. Um, the Madagascar ground boa will take refuge in mountain burrows, fallen logs, and under man-made debris piles near villages. Um, so the Dumerl boas are terrestrial, snake hiding in the abundant leaf litter, and their color pattern allow them to camouflage perfectly with their surroundings. Their ground color is typically a varying shade of silver and gray, with a patterning of dark brownish black saddles marked on the side and top of the body. The sides of the snake can have varying amounts of white blemishing, and the dorsal will be frosted with pinkish highlights that typically fade as the animal matures. These boas are moderate in size, most adults ranging from four to six feet. Some larger individuals have been seen in captivity. Neonates are typically 12 to 18 inches, and dumerals give the appearance of being a short, stout snake for their length. Adults average uh, between 7 and 10 pounds. Again, in captivity, overfed snakes can greatly exceed these weights. Adult females tend to be larger than males, and females will give birth to 6 to 28 young after a 6 to 8 month gestation. One thing I had noticed with my captive dumerals um, was that they seem to get obese very easily, and it seems to show itself in the uh, between the scalation of the snake in the skin. More than the actual tone of the snake, I've noticed it in their skin, which was something unusual I noticed if you overfed these snakes. Just wanted to kind of jump in there. So can uh, I ju- Dumeril- yeah, go ahead. Can I jump in? One so you talked about the, the size. Do you recall a couple of years ago, maybe it's longer than that, maybe it's 10 or 15 years ago, that there was somebody um, suggesting that they had a dwarf lineage of Dumerals. Yes. Yeah. Do you know anything about that? Just as we're, when we're talking about size and stuff within the, uh... I, I, I think there's, they're still following along that breeding from what I've heard from people in the Dumerals world that I've spoken to recently. Um, a lot of them don't really believe in it. Um, they don't think it's a, a genetic thing or, or anything like that. Um, uh, so I, I don't really know enough about it to really comment okay. intelligently on it. It's just thinking about, you know, that genetic work to suggest two species. 
Um, I'm wondering mm-hmm. as it follow along those lines. It'll be interesting to to get samples from those from those dwarf lines in time to see how they compare. I could uh, I could probably do something for you there and get oh, that. Cool. Yeah, we need to rustle yeah. some things up. Yep. Maybe. Yep. Uh, so dumeril blowers are ambush hunters. They will lay in leaf litter and with only their heads sticking out, waiting for passing prey. Uh, being very opportunistic, they will feed on a variety of mammals, birds, and even lizards. Tenoracs, similar to a hedgehog, have been found to be preyed upon by Dumeril's boas. That's an interesting meal for a snake to take down, for sure. I, I notice in captivity, again, with that um, ambush-type hunting, if you give them a nice deep litter of uh, aspen bedding, they, they will be very much like a blood python where they will bury into that with just their head sticking out. And if you feed your snake in the same area of the caging, I notice they'll set up in that spot every time uh, when they start getting hungry, they'll burrow in and their head will be right in the area. If you are consistent where you put your prey. So they, they definitely, um, you know, show a lot of signs of being a typical ambush hunter. Um, Dumeril's bowers are considered endangered in the wild and are listed as CITES Appendix 1 and classified as least concern on the IUCN. Some reasons I have found online that cause the endangered status were due to exportation in masses for the leather trade. It was also considered a delicacy in China and it was exported worldwide for the pet trade. So do you know when they were last brought in legally from Madagascar? I do not. I do not know that. Rob may have some insight on that. In in the UK, um, you know, the the CITES aspect is really interesting because you've got to microchip your animals and register them. So, you know, it's quite a bit of effort involved, whereas in the US, you don't. You just can't export them. Mm. Yeah. it was interesting, but back in the day, they were more strict on the Sanzinia, um, but yet all these snakes carried the same CITES all along, but it seemed like everybody concentrated on Sanzinia back in the day and not so much on the Dumeril's boas, you know? Interesting. Rob, do you know anything about the last kind of importation of legal animals? So I'll take a quick peek on the fly. I think... More or less, the answer was that I think we're talking probably the early 80s on those. Um, and certainly, I think basically the differentiation, Keith, that you're talking about is a reflection of basically the litter size and success. So the Dumeril's boas basically became an example of a captive breeding success where there's um, some were certainly brought in. It probably, as you highlighted, was not the sole driver, uh, especially in Madagascar, where we know that Habitat uh, destruction associated with deforestation is really the number one driver of the loss of biodiversity there. But um, I'll take a look uh, on the fly here in terms of the CITES documentation around it and then follow back, you know, circle back on it. But uh, I think really what we're seeing in the differentiation between um, Dumeril's, ground boas, and the Sanzinia species is just that Dumerals, the, the number that came in were enough to substantiate and create the population that we still see existent today. The legislation around it has been the same for, you know, more than two decades. So it, it's not a question of that. Uh, so I think really where we're seeing the difference is just that Dumerals were able, were readily reproduced and popped out large litters, 
whereas the other ones, uh, that didn't prove to really be the case. So maybe uh, that made all the difference relative to the handful that had come in, what they were able to produce, and how long that produced a viable yeah, captive population. So is this, is the six to eight month gestation time accurate? I've never bred Dumerils. I've never bred any Madagascan boas. Six months, that's, that's crazy. Yeah, uh, typically mine would be born in late September throughout October. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I would, I would be pairing my animals and getting breeding typically at, at least six months prior to that. Yes. Okay. Did you ever notice like ovulation and then the time from ovulation to birth? Yeah, but I'm not great at keeping records, so I don't have what that is. Yeah, yeah. Um, one interesting thing, though, they are another boa that uh, the babies at birth, when uh, I would go in to collect them, there would be shed skins already. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're one that literally shed as they're coming out. But um, Stanzania do that as well, right, or can do that? They can do that as well, yeah. Mm-hmm. I've, uh, I've seen that uh, with Sanzania also, yes. Mm-hmm. So the next species up is the Ancrantophis uh, madagarensis. It's the Madagascar ground boa. Um, and this one, I, I previously had jumped ahead with the dumerals, so forgive me when I reiterate that information. Uh, the largest snake species in Madagascar, these boas are found in central, northern, and western Madagascar. Similarly to dumerals boas, these snakes prefer a drier habitat. This area of the island is sparse, open woodland with low scrub bushes. Uh, according to Wikipedia, and I quote, the Madagascar dry deciduous forest represents a tropical dry forest situated in the western and northern part of Madagascar. The area has high numbers of endemic plant and animal species, but has suffered large-scale clearance for agricultural. These are among the world's richest and most distinctive dry forest. Madagascar ground boas will take refuge in the mammal burrows, fallen logs, under man-made debris, piles near villages. Um, I've seen a lot of pictures online where these snakes are found under old tin piles and all. I'm presuming that they're, they're going to these villages uh, to feed and they're attracted to that um, type of thing. Uh, These boas have similar coloration to the Dumerals boas, but the patterning is quite different. The dorsal has less of the heavy pattern and is more or less a series of zigzag lines. The pattern to me is more shattered than the Dumerals boas. These boas are larger in length than the Dumerals boas, with an average adult female being about 8 feet, with an occasional 10-foot specimen being seen. Males are smaller than the females as adults. A personal comment from Paul Mitzelfeld was that a comparable length of dumeral bows will actually be heavier in body structure than a Madagascar ground boa. Madagascar ground boas breed after brumation in the wild and are said to gestate for four to six months. Litter size is two to four and neonates are 19 to 24 inches. Uh, I've seen some, I've never bred, this is the one species I have never bred, um, but I have seen brand new babies that are huge. Uh, you can't even believe they're, they're just very large in size compared to the Dumerals boas. Um, and the smaller litters, I guess, kind of reflect 
that larger size. Uh, an interesting side note, personal comments from Paul, are that he has bred both species in his collection and the gestation is six months for Madagascar ground boas and dumeral boas tend to be about five months gestation. Um, so there's a little conflicting uh, information there from what the wild animal, wild populations as compared to in captivity. My dumeral boas generally went for six months gestation from the best I could tell. Um, so it's roughly the same as the Madagascar ground bows. But Paul has bred more of them than I have, and he notes that the dumerals to be a little bit less in gestation than the Madagascar ground bows. Do you currently keep Madagascar ground bows? No. The stupidest thing I've ever done, uh, Warren, <laughs> was I had the most beautiful pair of Madagascar ground bows, yeah. and I was on my emerald kick, and a very unique animal came up uh, for the emeralds that I had to move on quickly. And I know the Madagascar ground bows would sell quickly, which they did. And I used the money to get the bow, uh, emerald tree boa. And to this day, I still regret that decision. Because um, right about now, they would have probably been about size and age um, for some breeding attempts. So I would have really enjoyed to have ticked that one off my list. But, yeah. but is that emerald, on my part. Is that emerald still alive and doing well? The emerald's still alive, doing well, but I've never bred it <laughs> to see what I could do with the, uh, yeah. Oh, so Madagascar ground bows are also opportunistic ambush hunters. Uh, rodents, bats, tenerec, lemurs, and ducks have been preyed upon by the adults. These bows are also CITES, one, uh, um, CITES Appendix 1 and classified as least concerned on the IUCN. Red list of threatened species since 2011. So this is a species that there's not a lot of. I know one person with them. Maybe you know more people with, with these. I just I know a few. Yeah. So are they – does Paul consider them harder to breed than Dumerals? Yes. They seem, they seem to do the bull and I hat trick where um, – they'll be building follicles and then just reabsorb. Um, there seems to be some kind of a, a difficulty there to get them to, to actually go all the way and ovulate and uh, produce a healthy litter. Mm -hmm. um, that seems to be one of the things that the guys I know that are working with them are concentrating, focusing on um, doing things more like introducing the males later in the cooling process and keeping the males with them longer and, you know, all the kind of little tricks that you would do when, you know, you have a more difficult to breed species. But I know, uh, I know f at least four people right now that are working with them. Of those four, one of them feels uh, that they have a gravid female right now that's doing the right thing. So fingers crossed um, that works out yeah, and some more of these start being produced in the States. But with such a small litter size, like that is incredible that for a snake that size, because I've seen adult females and they are big. Yeah. To have such few yeah. spring. Yeah. The, you wonder on the strategy, right? You have many babies and, and, and they're usually smaller and, you know, hopefully a few of them make it, or do you have the larger babies that, you know, can take more different varied prey and maybe can defend themselves a little bit better. It's, it's an interesting strategy that some animals take up, you know, but even dumerals give birth to big babies. Right. Do you know, have big babies and they have quite a lot more? 
Yeah. They have quite a lot more, but they're nowhere near as close in size. Not not this big. I mean, these yeah. are huge. These are. Yeah, they're probably a third the size of an average yeah. uh, ground boa bait. Yeah. Which is still a disparity, right, relative to the average uh, litter size. But um, it reminds me, actually, of the Cuban boas, right, that are similarly sized, really large snake that tends to have four, six, eight, you know, babies, but they're, they come out two, two and a half foot long. Right. Yeah. Rob, have you ever kept the uh, Madagascar ground boa? I haven't. Cameron was getting them from somebody in the mid, you know, the mid aughts, as they say, uh, there was someone who every year was producing some, uh, and then would wholesale them through Cameron. And I thought about it, but, uh, no, I never did. So I, I've seen them, but I've mm. never had them. Yeah, they're a very interesting species. I, I like them for the time I had them. And again, like I say, I'm kicking myself every time I think about them. It was a beautiful pair from Paul. Were they calm? Yeah. Yeah, they were. They were they were non-problematic, beautiful animals. Um, I think a little bit in the back of my mind, I was thinking about having another large species to deal with because I do, you know, I have the Bolan eye and I have the Argentine boas and the Guiana boas and you know, space is limited here. So I think that was in the back of my mind a little bit, but I, I, I really wish I had kept them and made room for them. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and maybe passed on some of the other projects. (laughs) (laughs) So one day I'll get back. I'll be, I'll get them back one day. Mm -hmm. All right. Next up we have, uh, the Sanzinia and, uh, we'll start with the Sanzinia Madagarensis. Um, there are two recognized forms, the eastern and the western. We'll discuss the western next. Um, the eastern form is commonly called the Madagascan tree boa, the green sanzinia, or simply the eastern. Interestingly, in captivity, this tree boa seems to spend most of the time on the ground or concealed within a tight hiding spot. The island of Madagascar is separated between the east and the west with a number of mountain ranges located roughly down the center of the island, from north to south. The eastern Sanzinia is obviously located on the eastern side of the mountain range. The eastern side of the mountain range is more tropical rainforest than the western side. The eastern Sanzinia prefer, prefers trees and shrubs that are located near a water so- natural water source. The eastern Sanzinia's background color is of varying shades of green, The saddles are darker black green with highlights of varying amounts of white. This animal, um, I'm sorry, this can give the animal a very contrasting look. Females tend to be larger than males and adults average between four and five feet, but six foot animals are not uncommon. Neonates are typically average about 15 inches in length and litter sizes range from 10 to 14 typically. Sanzinia will hunt arboreal or uh, or on the ground, and they tend to be more active hunters than the uh, Acranthophis. Sanzinias feed primarily on appropriate sized mammals and birds. Uh, Sanzinia are listed as Ascites Appendix 1. This species was classified as vulnerable on the IUCN red list of threatened species. So this is also an interesting one because... um, Talking to people that have been to Madagascar, they said they're not exactly uncommon. Um, and the the other interesting thing was that they'd said about the you know calling it the Madagascan tree boa. That whenever they found it, 
in the trees would tend to be whenever there was flooding occurring and the burrows were flooded. Yeah. But normally they were they were found on the ground. And my green sansinia rarely go into the trees, and I offer them a lot of branches. Most of them will sit on the ground and hide. Yeah, yeah. I mostly find them in the in the branches when they're actively hunting. Yeah. If they're not actively hunting, they're usually they seem to really prefer a very tight uh, hide spot. Yeah. Um, I've, you know, they, I find mine to be really shy. And whenever you take them out, they're more likely to ball up than to try and flee mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. Really unusual yeah, they, animal. Yeah, they'll pull their head in uh, yeah. for sure and try terrible. to get it under a couple coils. Yeah, Ter terrible to get pictures of as a result of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was lucky to uh, get a good headshot for my uh, one tattoo here that I have of uh, a Sanzinia head because, like you said, they're definitely tough yeah. to get a good headshot of. <laughs> yeah. So these, it should be uh, noted, are really the ones that are less common in the U.S. collections. Yeah, substantially less. Yeah, they, 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 at one time, the, I found the, the Westerns to actually be the more rare when I was getting, um, Sanzinias for the very first time. At, it seemed like the greens were a little bit easier to find than the reds. And the reds were the new thing that everybody wanted. They called them reds, the Westerns. Um, but, uh, that changed very quickly. Um, I think, We'll talk about it later, but I think the mandarins are a little bit easier to breed for sure than the um, easterns, and that probably led to them becoming a lot more common in captivity, I believe. Interestingly, I see a lot more greens in Europe and the UK than here in the US. You kind of get this yeah. flip. Oh, it's, it's, it seems to be, and I might be wrong, but it seems to be more more greens in, in compared to the mandarins in Europe and, and the, flip, the reverse of that here in the US. Yeah, I, I see that as well. Yeah, I agree. So we'll talk about the uh, sans, uh, the uh, Volatani now. Um, as the common name suggests, the western Sanzania lives on the western side of the island's mountain range. The habitat is much drier than on the eastern side of the mountains. Here is more of a deciduous dry forest and far less annual rainfall. Um I was just kind of curious on the color differences. I mean, there it is a pretty dramatic color difference between the two. Um, and I guess the drier habitat kind of leads to that as far as blending or camouflage reasons. Um, I was wondering if you had any thoughts on, on why the colors would be so different, Warren or Rob. Yeah, I don't know, but I certainly see pictures of animals across the range of the island. And there's a lot of variation that you mentioned earlier on. It's not a cut and dry, here is a green and here is a mandarin. There's some that you really do mm -hmm. question. Uh, and I do wonder whether that's a result of hybridization or just or just natural variation within the range. I think the other thing to bring up when it comes to color is that the greens, whenever they're born, the babies tend to be red, right? And then they'll uh -huh. go through an autogenic color yeah. change within the first couple of years versus the mandarins, which I don't think goes through as dramatic a color change. They certainly kind of do change a bit, but not the ones that I've seen tend to be less dramatic than the, than the yeah. green, you know, where the greens are almost when they're born, like the red can be really vivid red, almost uh, emerald tree bone, neonate red. And then they shift. Yeah. I've actually had some Eastern Sanzinia born that were green right from the start, which I haven't seen anybody else note that, but nice. I have had a couple animals that were born green as, uh, 
as soon as they were born. Wow. That's really cool. But I agree with you. The Westerns almost seem like, if anything, they, they just dull a little bit as they age more than really change dramatically in tone or, or overall color. Yeah. Now, there was some, I don't know if you remember, in Europe, maybe about 15 years ago, there was some, a guy called, I think it was Rene Voss, and he had some Sanzinia, some mandarins that were born almost yellow, like banana yellow. Mm-hmm. Green, like cream, but a lot of the body, not not just small speckles of it. And they were just absolutely incredible. And for years, I tried to find out what happened to those, and I can't seem to find anything. Yeah, I, I can send you some pictures. I, I think there's something that happens with um, the Sanzinia and Dumerals um, where this anomaly happens because I've produced Dumerals that had that same look. I know the look you're talking about in Sanzinia. I've produced Dumerals that had that same look where it was like a yellow orange, total black background color with yeah. just dark markings on them. Um, so I, I don't really know what causes that. And it, and it was in a pair of Dumerals that I bred numerous times and the babies were always normal looking. And then this one time, one litter just came out like looking like that. So wow. I don't know what causes that, but I'll send you pictures. It's pretty interesting. So with your experience with the, um, the mandarins, so I don't have mandarins. Um, do you find them to be more arboreal or less arboreal than the greens? Uh, I don't find much difference there. Uh, Size-wise, oh, yeah. I, I notice that they get larger um, yeah. than the easterns. Um, but uh, mannerisms or, or how they act in captivity, I don't really, I don't personally notice much of a difference. Yeah, years ago, I, um, I had a friend, uh, Clive Osborne, sadly passed away a number of years ago back in the UK and he had a pair of mandarins that were absolutely enormous and I don't think they were obese they were just really big all over massive head really girthy animal that when once you saw it you questioned whether it could be a tree boa or not because it didn't have the body proportions to actually fit into what we consider a tree boa that lateral body compression that you see on a on a on a corallus you know it was just massive animals and whenever i talk to people um that have been working on madagascar and they said they find them in burrows and under logs and that, that it kind of made sense that they were much more of a of a terrestrial animal and in fact their body shape does suggest much more of a terrestrial animal because if you took a a section of the body of a of a sanzinia and the section of a body of a emerald tree boa or a green tree python they're very different you know that yeah they're, they definitely have that, you know, more ground boa-like body structure, I feel. Even the tail from vent to tip of tail is totally different of what you would think of an arboreal boa yeah. or any snake for that matter. It's it's definitely a lot different than uh, yeah. than you think. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't sure. have that, that strong prehensile nature that you, that you see right. in the other truly arboreal snakes. Right, right. Yeah. So uh, you, you wonder sometimes if, if the name is is of tree boa was associated just because of the look that they similarly have to some of the more standard tree boas. Right. I think that's, I think you're right. And I I think it is, you know, whenever they were first collected and they might've been sitting in trees because we know that, you know, a a lot of collection can occur whenever natural habitats are flooded because they're moving out of burrows and therefore you're finding animals. So some of those early animals that were coming in, if they were caught during a season, during a wet season, whenever burrows were flooded and therefore they were sitting in trees and they were given that name, you know, just a Madagascan tree boa. 
right. but it certainly doesn't fit. You know, I I have mine still in arboreal enclosures, but they live on the ground. And I know that Tracy Barker, she keeps hers in 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 racks. She doesn't yeah. breed hers in in cages, and they and she breeds right. them successfully all the time. Right. Yeah, and the labial pits, um, you know, on the on the Sanzinia tend to be more of, a, of what you think of with an arboreal snake too. Um, so I think they do a lot of their hunting, possibly yeah. in the you know low bushes and trees. Yeah, um, that's where the pet pits come in handy. Right. So I thought maybe we could talk about the captive husbandry of all the species. Um, maybe we could start off with the uh, Madagascar ground boas, since. Um, None of us really have a lot of experience with that. We'll, we'll knock that one out quick. <laughs> so I'm, I'm basing a lot of it on my limited experience with them and, and talking with Paul. But, um, you know, I, I had my animals in um, and they were not they were only sub adults. And I had them in five foot by two foot cages. I gave them a very deep substrate. They seemed to appreciate that of aspen bedding. Um, I gave them a large water bowl, which um, they used for drinking, but not much else. Um, and I gave them uh, a varied um, choice of hide spots because they definitely seemed to really appreciate that. And they were very non-problematic. And I think during the growing phase, they use food well and they put it to growth and not not getting obese. Um, but I would I would expect them like the Dumeril's boas once they're adult. Um, overfeeding could become pretty easy with them where you could pack too much weight on them uh, to an unhealthy um, uh, mass on the animal for sure, taxing its organs and definitely uh, slowing down its reproductive uh, capabilities for sure. So what are are people feeding adult females? Are these like rabbits or are they jumbo rats? Yeah, they could definitely, they could jumbo rats. Definitely. Um, I think larger meals infrequently are the way to go with the adults from people I've talked to. Um, mine, like I say, were just sub adults. They were growing up and they, like I say, handled food very well. Um, they were putting it to growth for sure. Um, so I think at a younger size, you can, you can feed them more regularly, but as adults probably back off to a once a month feeding of a larger meal. Um, I didn't notice like dural boas, even as I was growing them up, they, they seemed to, they would get a little bit stocky if I overfed, um, trying to get size on them, they would seem to be packing weight on also as they were growing, uh, I didn't notice that so much with the uh, Madagascar ground boas. Mm-hmm. On the Sanzinia, as far as feeding go, um, so the last litter I produced was a group effort between uh, Matt Minatola, uh, Elijah Armands, and uh, Paul Mitzfeld. And we each took a couple animals from that and um, – I actually traded one of the animals to Jeff Murray for new blood uh, in our group. And I'm growing that animal up and, and Elijah is, is growing up two of the animals that came out of the litter that I produced then. And his animals are like three times the size of mine, but they look really good. They look really healthy. I don't know if the animal I have is just genetically different and it's growing at a slower rate because I feel like I'm feeding it pretty well. Um, 
but his animals look fantastic. He, he, he's got them up. They look like breeding size and we're only just about closing in on three years of age on those animals. So, um, I haven't really experimented with different feeding regimes with the Sanzania, but I'd like to start doing that and see see what happens there as far as growing up the animals. I tend to take it slower these days than in my younger days. I used to want to get everything up to breeding size in no time, but nowadays I take things a lot slower. And, and animals that people can get to breed in three to four years are taking me five to six years. So it's kind of the way I'm going now. Yeah, migraines tend to be very shy feeders, so they rarely take from tongs. Um, the males sometimes will if he's in the trees, but more often than not, I just have to leave the a rat or a mouse, depending, just sitting on the on the cage floor, and it'll be gone mm-hmm. within thirty or forty minutes. But they, they, mine just don't seem to be aggressive feeders. Yeah, so in my group, I definitely notice uh, a difference between the males and the females, uh, especially as adults. The adult males will definitely go on a hunger strike. Uh, during the breeding season and it can be challenging to get them back on food after the breeding season. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes uh, adding a mouse versus a rat. I don't know if it's the movement, the scent or what will get them back onto a feeding. Sometimes I have to actually go to live to get the males back on feed. They they definitely go on a long hunger strike. And if they're in the same vicinity of the females and can still sense the females are around, I think that prolongs how long, they're going to be off food before they go back on and they'll actually start losing weight and you start getting concerned about it um, before they'll start feeding again. But they put the weight back on relatively quickly once you do get them back on food. But the females I notice are much better feeders in general for me anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My, my male is uh, for a long time. He would, he would only eat mice. I couldn't shift him over to rats. The female on the, in contrast, she, she readily takes rats. But the male, mm-hmm. no, he would he would definitely still um, preferentially eat mice over rats. He'd go on a, on a bit of a hunger strike um, if I was offering only rats to him. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so typically, like um, the Sanzinia, I notice uh, you know definitely prefer cooler temperatures overall as adults. Um, I give them a pretty wide range. I, I actually keep them out of a hot room and I keep them in the open basement I have, um, which tends to be 65 to 70 degrees year round. And I give them no heat at night. And I typically just give them a small basking spot with a um, halogen bulb that will give the hot spot the way I have it set up generally about 84 to 86 degrees. And I never see them use it unless a female is gravid and then she will bask. Other than that, they I give them an upside-down kitty litter pan on purpose and also a heavy hide um, that is immovable. And the reason I give them that upside-down um, kitty litter pan that's lightweight is they'll actually shift the hide box through the cage, depending if they want warmer or cooler. Um, and they never move it directly under the basking light, but they'll move it closer to the basking light and use it for a few days and you'll go, you know, check on the animals and they have moved it back over into the cooler side of the cage. And they seem to prefer that, um, except for the females when gravid will come out and openly bask under the halogen bulb, which I thought was a pretty interesting thing with the mm. Sanzinia. 
What size of cages do you use for your greens and your mandarins? Uh, they're five foot long, two foot wide, and two foot high. Oh, wow. Cool. Yeah. Um, I, I would even go bigger nowadays. My, my thought on a lot of stuff is to, to even go bigger just to give you the ability to offer more um, options for the animals, you know, and I'm all about watching what they're doing and why they're doing it. And uh, I think you can achieve that. The bigger the cage is, um, you can find out and learn a lot so much more about the animals. So if I was going to build new cages for them today, I'd probably build them in the six foot by three foot range and yeah. three foot tall, um, just to, to really watch what they're doing and why they're doing it. And then you would offer, would you offer branches or would you prefer to go for shelving? For shelves within the cages for those? Um, I would I would do shelving and um, I would also do branches because I think they do use the branches and it gives them good exercise. So like I say, I like them to be hungry for a few days. I wouldn't feed them as soon as I see them out openly hunting. I wait a little bit of time and, and make them actively search for a little bit. And I think it gives them more time for exercise in the branches because that's the only time I see them in the branches is when they're they're hungry and they're out really looking for food yeah um, and i will say that so with branches mine don't they don't drape on a branch like an emerald or a, or a green tree python they kind of drape over multiple branches yes. almost like a, like an amazon tree boa uh, yeah. so you can see that they're not they're not spending their time there they're just using it i think you're right for for feeding opportunities yeah and and like you said um i with that, I do offer more natural branches that have multiple forks and crooks and, and you know, I stack them up on each other so that there's almost that platform effect that they can coil in that if they wanted to versus a straight perch. I don't think you would ever really see them on it. They, you'd see them crawling over it, but they really wouldn't spend any time um, fast or coiled up on that at all, I don't think. Uh, on the Dumerals boas, um, those animals were also in two foot by five foot by two foot high cages. Uh, when I when I kept those, I actually have a young pair right now that Paul had given me that I'm raising up for old times' sake. Um, but when I when I kept and bred uh, Dumerals boas, they were in uh, two by five by two foot high cages. Um, I was keeping them back then on a paper substrate, just uh, very simplistic and set up. Nowadays, I would definitely probably give them, um, and the young ones I'm raising right now, I keep on aspen bedding also because I notice how much the animals really like to bury in there with just their heads sticking out. Um, it's a little bit more work for me, but um, I think the animals enjoy it a lot more. Um, of the three species, I've never seen any of them bask, or I'm um, sorry, soak in a Water vessel, I've offered large water uh, bowls for all of them. I've never seen that uh, them soaking at all. So I've kind of gone back to just a 12-inch crock water dish that is about three inches high. Um, and I change water very frequently for them. But uh, I've never really seen any of them um, want a, a good soak, even if it's shed time or anything. They, they seem to... Most of the animals I have seem to very much appreciate the dryness uh, more than getting uh, super hydrated by sitting in a water bowl. Um, have you noticed anything with that uh, with your animals? I personally um, have never seen them soak. 
you know, so I, I offer relatively small water bowls, but I've never seen any evidence of them even trying to get into it or draping over it. Hmm. Yeah. 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 I didn't really mention temps that I did with the Dumerals or the, the Madagascar Rambos, but um, I did not provide basking for them. I kept them ambient, much like I did blood pythons. Um, I would keep the uh, daytime temps anywhere from 82 to 84 degrees. And uh, nighttime drops would be like 75 to 78. Um, and the Dumerals I bred many times. I never had any issues with uh, slugs, stillborns, or deformities of any kind with the babies. They, they seem to do fine that way. Um, I think when this young pair I have now get big, though, I will uh, build a larger cage for them and, and provide another uh, halogen basking spot for them. Um, just to see how that works out, uh, if I see any differences from the old days when I used to, to work with them. Um, Rob, have you kept any of the Doomerol boas? I don't know if you've kept Doomerols. Yeah, I've had a few for a short period of time, but I certainly wouldn't consider myself an expert. Did you provide uh, the, the ones you had with a basking spot? No, I just had them in tubs. So mm-hmm. I guess I guess yes, a basking spot. So more of an ambient setup. Yeah, not not through a bulb. Gotcha. Understood. Understood. Cool. Uh, so feeding on uh, on the Sanzinia, um, I give the adults a large rat about every two weeks. Um, that seems to maintain a pretty good weight on them. Um, I may go three weeks sometimes with them also because they look, um, for sure, like you could get them overweight fairly easy. Um, so I'm, I'm a large rat, um, about every three weeks. I do, uh, feed cycle on the females for the breeding season. I'll, I'll stop everybody during my cool down, um, from food. And then I'll start hitting the females heavy, the standard kind of boa pattern of, um, you know, after some breeding has taken place and trying to get the female to, to build follicles and ovulate, I hit them pretty frequently with smaller meals from a large rat. I go to a medium rat and I'll give them maybe every seven days. Um, when I start to see them putting some good weight on, then I'll hit them with a, a large rat again. Um, and usually one or two of those seems to, to get them to the point of, um, ovulation. Um, I notice that with a lot of the boas, I'm sure you do too, Warren. Yeah, I think we've talked about that before. You know, I tend to, uh, I've not bred Sanzinia before, but with with um, any of the boas or pythons that I that I breed, I tend to um, stop feeding uh, and they, they, they go through a food cycling phase so that they might not necessarily, I don't deliberately temperature cycle them, but they, the room that my, my boas were in all went through an annual kind of temperature cycling. So they would have some water of a, of, a, of a temperature cycling, but normally a food cycling. And whenever I had introductions going on, I saw females starting to build follicles. Um, and and I, I saw some kind of pre-ovulation swells. I would then hit them with food. And what, what I would tend to do then at that point is once I started seeing a pre-ovulation, I would offer them meals that were larger than what I was normally feeding. And mm-hmm. I would tend one meal, maybe two, is all that was required to push them over the edge yeah. going to that full ovulation yeah. phase. So I think you could you could probably do the same thing the other way around. You could offer 
more frequently the smaller meals as you're doing. But I think, it's, I think that that's kind of key in many ways. You know, once they reach that pre kind of ovulation um, swell, um, hit them with food. And then I think you're going to see them kind of top over the edge. Yeah. Yeah. So one thing with Dumeril's boas for me in the breeding was if I didn't, if I didn't introduce the males and, and leave them together all year long or not all year long, all breeding season long with the female, I was never successful. She wouldn't, she wouldn't pass slugs. She wouldn't pass, you know, a couple slugs, a couple babies. I just didn't get anything from the females unless I left that male with them almost to like the point where I knew she was gravid and she was like a few weeks away from giving birth. Like, and then I would pull the male out. And with Sanzinia, I don't know why I don't follow that same kind of strategy. I, I, I think maybe I should leave the males in a lot longer and I would get better litters. Um, I tend to, when I think the female is gravid, pull the, the male out maybe too soon. I think I should leave the male in a little bit longer. Um, Cause I always tend to get, um, you know, let's say if I have 10 or 11, um, let's say masses come out of the female, seven of them will be good babies and three will be slugs or two stillborn or something like that. So I think I'm going to kind of switch things up, um, next year. We'll see how this year goes. I tried to leave the males in a little bit longer, add them a little bit later into the cycle. And, um, I'm going to kind of expand on that and see if I can get a little bit more successful with the the greens. I only work with the greens nowadays. I don't work with the mandarins anymore. Um, just don't have enough space to keep everything. So kind of focusing on the greens these days. Yeah. So I, I'll, I'll make one comment and that is that out of all of the work that we've done with, with, you know, so in my lab, we've done a whole bunch of work on sperm storage in snakes and long-term sperm storage. And we find, for example, that, uh, rattlesnakes, westerns, and Easterns can store sperm, viable sperm, and produce viable offspring after 71 months of sperm storage. It's the longest known genetically proven for any vertebrate species. Pythons can store sperm for multiple years. So, you know, I always warn people that are breeding ball pythons to be really careful because they'll store sperm over a year or even multiple years. So if they're producing what they think are hets or multiple hets, um, they might actually not be getting what they think they're getting. Um, mm-hmm. Blood patterns are the same. But boas tend to be really terrible at storing sperm. I've had instances where I haven't paired a female in a given year, but I paired her the year previous, and she might have bred and produced offspring, um, or she might have bred and not produced offspring, but a year later she's dumped out a bunch of slugs and maybe one or two um, either really runty um, but alive babies or else dead, stillborns, but they were from sperm stored from the year previous. Um, mm-hmm. I think the same is if you if you take the male out too early, because the thing is with boas, um, I find that courtship lasts a long time, and they could be twisting tails, but not actually, there would be actually nothing yeah. going on. It's just that courtship process. And you might pull out the male thinking that, well, there's all this tail twisting, and you know, and they're done. Um, I, I always recommend leaving that male in until you definitely see an ovulation and definitely see a post-ovulation shed and then you see the female mm-hmm. basking. If you don't see any of that, I think there's the risk of of, um, of the female um, not producing or producing 
um, a small litter because of um, just that inability to store sperm over long periods of time. Um, yeah. So but that's why I've always said with boas, it's one male to one female is the way I work. I don't, I don't mm-hmm. put multiple females because I don't think they can. I don't think they can very, very easily. You know, you have to yeah. get them right at that point, you know, where they're just about to ovulate for that kind of thing to work. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, you can definitely teach an old dog new tricks, you know, and, and the long, the more I, I went through a long period of time where I concentrated on pythons more than boas. In the beginning, I had boas and I went to pythons. Now I'm back to boas, mostly in the collection. And yeah, definitely learning a lot new, a lot of new things there. And, and I couldn't agree with you more on, on all of that. Uh, one interesting thing with I noticed with Sanzinia females, especially the Easterns, is how incredibly dark they become after they're gravid. Um, they can hormonally turn dark, um, but generally you're going to get at least slugs out of the female. Once they go dark, something's going to come out. Um, but um, I have heard um, from a couple breeders that there, there are a line of Sanzinias that will tend to stay lighter green and not darken up, but every animal I've ever worked with and bred has gotten incredibly dark, almost black, um, when they're gravid and they lose that a little bit. If you give them a, two years off or something, they do lighten up again, but they never seem to get back to that lustrous light green color that, you know, the animals could have had before, uh, their first successful breeding. Um, I don't notice a big difference, uh, with the Dumerals boas. I, I, nothing was outstanding as far as the color change on them. Um, and I, like I say, I've never bred the, uh, Madagascar ground bows. So, um, I don't know if that happens with them or not. I'm going to, my guess would be that it does not happen. It's interesting. We see that in other snakes, but like we see, um, certainly Amazon tree boas, they can, the f- gravid females change, can change color dramatically. Um, yeah. but I've also seen it in Sonoran boas, um, that whenever they're gravid, they will darken down quite a lot. And I was thinking about this a while ago, you know, relating it to Sanzinia. You know, these are cooler temperature species. And I wonder, is that just an evolutionary strategy to, in a cooler environment, to be able to absorb more heat? Um, I think, yeah. I think, I think um, Boa nebulosa does the same thing, the clouded boa. I think they get pretty dark when they're gravid. Oh, um, boas as well. So I'm wondering, is that just an evolutionary strategy? Because we don't see it across all boas and all pythons, but you certainly see it. In some, and, and, and certainly green Sanzinia are definitely that. You know, I've had friends asking, do I think their, their animal's gravid? And whenever I see it and they send me a picture and it's dark, then that tends to be a really good indicator. Now, what they get, as yeah. you say, what you what they get in the end, you don't know, um, but um, or, or you won't know, but it tends to be a good indicator that they're carrying something. Yeah. How about the, uh, just on a side note, do you notice anything with the different uh, localities of uh, Roshan Burgeri? Do you notice anything with the Trinidad's darkening up? I know my Costa Ricans don't really, but do you notice yeah. anything with the other? My Costa Ricans don't. I, I haven't noticed it in the Venezuelans. Um, but talking to a couple of people um, in Europe, they have noticed it in Venezuelans. Uh, Trinidad's seem to be variable. Some of them seem to darken down. Um, some of them don't. So, you know, I've got one right now that's looking like it's gravid, but she's not that dull. She's not darkened much, but um, so she might not be gravid. She's just, they're just big snakes. 
Um, mm-hmm. I'll know in a couple of months' time. But certainly I have seen it in other Corallus, not in emeralds. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've noticed it in emeralds. Though, though a couple of years ago, somebody sent me pictures of, of some of my animals that I'd sent them whenever they were gravid, and then they were comparing them to ones that were, when they were not gravid, and they thought they noticed females getting a little bit darker. Um, mm-hmm. Certainly not the extent of Sanzinia or, or what we see in Hortolana, stuff like that. Yeah. Some of the male boas like Rosenbergeri and actually even the male Sanzinias, and it might just be in my head, but I almost feel like they get a waxy appearance. The males during the breeding season, I don't know if you've noticed that with Rosenbergeri, but I know almost notice that same kind of a look with the uh, male Sanzinias during the breeding season also. Oh, interesting. Yeah. You know, with, with, with the Rosenbergeri, the thing that's interesting about them is they've got really big scales. So there are times of the year where they certainly do have a more shiny kind of sheen to them. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I, I should pay more attention to that there. You know, mm-hmm. I do certainly got, I don't know, 20 or something Ruschenbergerai or 30 Ruschenbergerai. So I should really um, pay some attention to that there next year uh, whenever I get them all set up in a new place. There's so many cues these animals give us that we can't keep up with it all, you know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Yeah. Uh, we talked a little bit about the uh, ontogenetic color change for the Sanzinia. I haven't really noticed that in the um, Dumerals or the Madagascar ground boas. Typically, the babies seem to be a little bit brighter in color and they can dull out a little bit as they age, but I haven't seen any big color changes uh, with those guys that I've I've raised or bred. Um, yeah, and I don't know if thinking about the, the color change, you know, I... The male that I've got, um, whenever it arrived, it was fire engine red. It's crazy. If you, if you look on my Instagram page, the, the Boa Booth Instagram, and you scroll back a number of years, you'll see a picture of it. And it is just absolutely intense. Um, the other one that I got from you was a very different shade of, of, of it was almost, it was almost more green than red or more brown. So it was very, very different. So there seems to be some variation across, across those. Yeah. As well. and I see some produced in Europe that are just, just flaming red, just incredible. But there seems to be a lot of variation that exists in that, in that species. Yeah. Yeah. The one I got, uh, and from Jeff in trade, uh, the one I had, um, like you said, was more of a rusty red and the one from Jeff was more of an orangey bright red. Yeah, uh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. And like I say, I've produced uh, a few babies in a litter that were actually green right off the start. Which yeah, that's really. Like cool. I guess I haven't heard. Yeah, I haven't heard of anybody so, else saying that. But so, did they change at all in any way? Not really. No. I mean, the the. I don't know. I, I go back and forth on the white on Sanzinia whether it intensifies as they get older. It seems to me like I, I don't know if on the the patch just grows larger, but it, it seems to me like as the animals age, the white becomes more pronounced. Maybe it just blends better on the Easterns as a baby. Um, and it just stands out more as they mature and go through their chain color change. But to me, it seems like they pick up a little white as they mature. Um, yeah, I would agree with you observations. Yeah. I noticed that with mine, that the, the white yeah. intensify. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know of any uh, morphs or any kind of a thing out there. I don't know if you've heard of anything with uh, Sanzinia. 
or even Doomerals or um, uh, Madagascar ground bows. I, I don't know if any albinos have been found or anything along those lines. I, I have never heard of anything. The rod um, might just know, like, I, I think there was an albino Doomerals a number of years ago. Um, I, it kind of something makes me think that there was a, like a caramel albino in Europe, whether it was stillborn. Rob, do you know anything about that or, or am I kind of dreaming? Maybe I'll, I'll have to have a look and see if I can find a link to it. But it was definitely something like a caramel albino. Um, I haven't hmm. seen anything in Sanzinia uh, of albinos or, or anything, any other variants. But I've seen animals in Sanzinia, wild animals that almost look, almost look anarthristic. Um, and some that, that look almost um, greens that almost look weird shades of brown, you know. So, uh, But I don't know of any in captivity. Yeah, I've seen some uh, bluish-looking animals and, and, you know, gray, gunmetal gray-looking Easterns um, and Westerns, for that matter. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot more variability out in the wild. Than, yeah, I think you summarized it, Warren. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, not I, so much I, with I the vaguely have a recollection the, of that, too. Uh, yeah, I vaguely recall that, too, in terms of the Dumerals, so but I'm wrong? with you that I, I haven't seen the variation beyond what you guys are talking about in Tanzania. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I've seen a picture of this caramel albino, and I'm going to have to see if I can hunt it out. It was in Europe, I believe, and I can't remember if it was, you know, five or six years ago or 15 years ago. But I definitely re- yeah, I don't remember the follow up that would prove that it wasn't just sort of a, a gestational, you know, deformation or early birth oh. or or whatever. But yeah, I'm with you. Yeah. 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 Um, do you have anything you wanted to add, Owen? I've got one thing that I'm going to add that I was thinking about at the beginning that I didn't mention. One of the things that's really unusual about the Madagascan boas is that. So if we, it, it, it's it's basically relating to their sex chromosomes. Right, we think about mammals having XX for females and XY for males. Um, what we thought up until a number of years ago was that all snakes had ZZ and ZW. So ZZ are males and ZW are females. So therefore, the females are the ones that determines the sex of the offspring, whether they have a Z or a W um, egg. Um, a number of years ago, we showed that uh, boas and pythons actually evolved XX, XY sex chromosomes independently. So they are... Um, a different sex chromosome system to the rest of the snakes, but uh, and we find we we started getting hints to that from the um, from parthen genetic births. Whenever we'd find that boas and pythons were always producing female parthenogens, whereas things like the cobras and the pit vipers and stuff like that were always producing males. And then we did some uh, genomic sequencing to understand sex chromosome evolution, and we find out that the uh, boas and pythons were XX XY. Then, a number of years ago, and I haven't done anything with this, I should do it, um, I received a, um, an email about a, a, par- a possible parthenogenetic Dumerils boa, but they told me that the parthenogen was a male, and then it died, and then they couldn't get samples to me. And I thought, well, maybe it's sperm storage, because that doesn't fit into what we would think with boas being the XXXY and the female parthenogens. And then another person 
had one uh, produced. I think they were in Dallas, and they shipped this dead baby to me, um, and I averted the sex organs that turned out to be hemipenes. Um, and this animal had never, the mother had never been with a male. So um, we now subsequently know that Madagascan boas actually have ZZZW sex chromosomes. So they're an odd little branch on the evolutionary tree of boas that they have either retained what could be an ancestral sex chromosome form, as in X or as in ZZZW, or else they reverted from XXXY to that. ZZZW, which was not something that could be easily done. So they're they're really unusual in that in that they have a different sex system. So therefore, if you ever hear people talking about hybrids between boas and dumerals or boas and Madagascar, it doesn't happen. It can't happen because they've separated. But I'm talking about hybrids between dumerals and Madagascariensis. Um, they've they've asked me if I would do genetic work to determine if their animals are hybrids or not, and we can certainly do that. Um, but um, I haven't heard of anything with uh, with um, any of like Sanzinia hybridizing with with Ancrantophis or anything like that. There, but they do have they all have this ZZZW sex chromosome system, which is kind of neat. Mm. Visually, I've seen questionable animals between Dumerals and uh, the ground boas. Um, for sale in some of the online uh, places where they sell animals. I, I've seen animals to me that are very questionable and talking to other people. So I think there are some out there for sure um, with the Dumerals and yeah, the Madagascar ground boas. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be interesting. I'd like to see some, some pictures of those and, and, you know, I'd like to see how they followed up with those, but I, I've certainly hear a lot of people expressing concerns about animals. Uh, yeah, you think that too, Rob, right? Just, Rob, um, you, you feel that way I've also with what you've seen online? Questionable, uh, mostly in photographs. But, yeah, I agree with you, Keith, uh, that it's something that's bandied about quite a bit. And when you when it's uh, pertinent, yeah. I do have updates on the legality, on all this stuff, the history, legality, all, all that. Right. Stuff. I don't know if you guys... So just tell me when. Okay. Oh. So it looks like. Yeah, let's um, have it, Rob. So I was looking at the CITES species identification manual that was put out in 1991. And um, so all three of these, meaning San, both Sanzinia as one, and then the Dumerals and the ground boas, look like they were listed as CITES one off a petition in 1976 from Switzerland. There was at least in the context of the two Acrantophis, Madagascar had initially put in a request, but then the, the Swiss request is the one that was accepted. Um, but the interesting bit there is they were just listed as the genus Acrantophis, so they were not listed separately by species in terms of that CITES-1 appendix designation. Um, so that's sort of interesting. The Sanzinia, all captured under the singular species that exist, you know, was described in 1991 or existed at the time, um, were seemingly on that same 1976 to be effectuated 1977 pattern. So that's not the first list, you know, group of listings, but very close to. Um, that being said, despite that listing from the late 70s for the Sanzinia, 
1986, the International Zoo Yearbook. I don't have 1986. I, I went down to look, but I have 88, 88 and then previously because the 86 was not a reptile-focused year. Um, despite that listing, as of 86, there were 89 Sanzinia in 15 zoo collections that responded to the survey. Um, 11 were produced, I believe, that year or at least by that year at Fort Worth Zoo uh, in the U.S. Again, despite the listing status in 1987 and 1988, 30 respondent countries documented that 50 live uh, Sanzinia were traded in each of those two years, presumably with their approval, despite the listing. Um, so we have, again, going back to the late 80s is kind of when we're seeing active trade in these. The Dumerals, kind of the same time frame, we're talking about, oh, let me make sure I have the right one. The Dumerals, as of 1986, there were 123, over 23 reporting collections and notes of successful breeding in uh, Chicago and Dallas. And in 87 and 88, there were 17 and 8 live specimens recorded uh, by uh, reporting countries, again, despite the listing. And the same thing for the ground boas. There were 36 specimens in seven collections, seven zoo or reporting collections. 13 had been bred in two different South African collections that reported to that. And nine countries reported five live in 87 and 88. So despite being CITES listed as the entire genus from the late 70s, there was active trade, uh, much larger in dumerals than ground boas, but still active trade in 1987 and 1988. And for Sanzinia, uh, again, despite that same listing at the same time, there was um, really high active trade in 87 and 88. But you can see even just in those figures of what zoo collections look like in 1986 that dumerals were the most established uh, Sanzinia bunching both, sub, you know, formerly subspecies, now species, together would be in the middle, and then ground boas would be the lowest, both in active collection numbers and trade, yeah. Yeah, I, I think dumerals, yeah, from, from what we see in the hobby, dumerals certainly seem to be uh, easy to breed, um, to the point that I, re I recall back whenever I lived in Ireland, you would see these these waves, you know, of, of a lot of people producing dumerals and then a massive trough a year or two later because people were having difficulty selling them because there's so many people were producing them. And then back up again, you see this, this wave, this peak again a number of years later. Uh, and I think we've seen something like that in the U.S. because last year I saw dumerals prices at, at values that were just absurd given that they're not and not a difficult animal to reproduce from what I from what I hear it's just there was a scarcity of them because people weren't producing them um, I, I recall seeing animals babies in the 800 to 900 dollar range which I thought was just unreal given that a number of years earlier not just two or three years earlier there were kind of the 250 to 350 range yeah I, th I think in the early to mid 90s dumerals boas were a you must have boa and and there wasn't a lot of them being produced and everybody wanted them so value was high and then um i think they went through a period for quite a long time where they like you said they lost that luster and a lot of people weren't that into them um 
and now right now it seems again that it's it's people are looking for something new and not a lot of people are working and breeding them and um the values yeah like you said had skyrocketed there last year yeah it might be part of that if it doesn't have a morph it's not worth keeping yeah right you know so and then there's a whole group of people that are like well it doesn't need to be a morph it needs to be kind of rare and unusual and you get that demand again yeah yeah and and some people are line breeding them for you know higher pinks or more white or you know different tones so i see some line bred stuff that looks you know like real clean examples of a uh boas if 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 that's a thing um that's kind of an interesting way to go also cool yeah i i once i get settled and moved i do plan to to, to pick up a pair of uh, doomerls just for the sake of having them i think they're kind of a cool snake yeah no I can't imagine. Yeah, I can't imagine ever getting Madagascariensis, but uh, and the size somewhat puts me off those. But uh, Dumerals, yeah. I could definitely see in the collection at some point. Yeah, if they can handle a lemur, they they they're pretty substantial in size. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and I just don't have a ready supplier of, uh, of frozen lemurs, so <laughs> and I'm not going to start breeding those as uh, as as snake food. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and that's another thought too with the Madagascar uh, Grambo is, is uh, some of the people think diet all as a lot of bull and I people think the wild diet might have something in it, you know, that the snakes are eating that we don't provide in captivity that, that could, you know, be one of the causes for poor reproductive uh, history with these species yeah. in captivity. Yeah. Interesting. So that's kind of all I got, guys. I don't know if you want to add anything to that. I don't. I think I, I made my comment about the potential cryptic species within Dumerals and also the uh, the unusual sex chromosomes. I think there's two aspects that are really interesting. Um, yeah, very. Uh, maybe not interesting at all to the, to the snake keepers, but uh, I think some people might find those certainly kind of intriguing. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, good stuff, Rob. Finding, digging up the uh, yeah, no worries at all. Glad, there glad to do it and be able to circle back Thanks while we're going that. here. Um, I really appreciate all the information that you guys have put out. I think it's fabulous. Great. So I'm going to uh, close the show. Um, Thanks for listening to the episode of Bows, Bows, Bows with Warren, Rob, and myself. Please check out the many shows on the NPR network and uh, the YouTube uh, listens on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever podcast app you may be using. Uh, For all the information, go to moralipythonradio.com. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode. And next, uh, I'm suggesting we talk to maybe Vin Russo. Are you guys down with that? I am completely supportive of that. Yes. All right. So uh, we'll, we'll try to get Vin on the next episode of Boas, Boas, Boas. Until then, follow your passions, guys. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks a lot, guys. Uh-huh.